Blog Talk Radio. Well, this is BC Radio Live with Eric, Lisa, and Philip live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha. Uh, tonight on BC Radio Live, we have a packed show to start off the new year. We plan to talk to John Michael Greer about his book, The Long Defense, all about peak oil, uh, and also to some folks from the band Sex Tapes about their debut album. Uh, before that, we hope to chat with Maureen Palmer, author of How to Divorce and Not Wreck the Kids. And first of all, though, we are going to speak with Mark Aronson, author of Unsettled, The Problem of Loving Israel. Today is Wednesday, the seventh day of 2009, and this, I guess, is the Happy New Year edition of VC Radio Live. Chat room is now open, looks new and spiffy and nice. There's a Blog Talk Radio redesign. You can check it out at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. The live video feed is now running. I'm Philip Wynn, the button pusher for BC Radio Live and Chief Geek at BC Magazine. And I'm joined tonight by the usual crew after a couple of, uh, gosh, we had, we had some fun over the holidays with missing weeks and missing hosts and so on. But tonight we have BC Magazine's founder and publisher, Eric Olson. Hi, Eric. Philip, how are you? Yeah, it was, we were so sad when Christmas Eve and then New Year's Eve fell on Wednesdays. We, yeah, it was tragic. We also have uh, BC Magazine's executive editor, Lisa McKay. Hello, Lisa. Hello, and Happy New Year to you both. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It is, I, in a way, it is. I tell you, it is good to be back on the air, to have that kind of, uh, I don't know, anchor to the week. Missing two weeks in a row, it actually kind of was, I have to admit, a nice break. But uh, it'll be fun to get back into it. Well, I've realized that the pattern has been, and, and I, I'm guessing it's similar for you guys too, although I don't want to speak for you, of course. But, you know, we were so into the show and, and had so many interviews going on and so much happening that, that we were literally, you know, spreading out to the after to Sean's afternoon show and cuz right. we had more than we could fit onto this show and people who were only available in the day and this and that and everything else. And then of course we had the whole Technorati thing happen and uh you know for for us and and I think for the world at large the world the world is a better place because of that and uh <laughs> and I imagine our lives uh, certainly big picture are are considerably better off but What's happened is, is we got all kinds of new stuff to concentrate on. Philip's not only running, physically running, blog critics these days, but also has become very involved with doing uh, tech work for Technorati. I'm I'm hearing all the time. Uh, I, I'm hoping no Technorati people are listening that he's their best tech guy. So uh, <laughs> any anyway, you know, so so we're we're super busy. We got new things. We have new. Uh, things to focus on, and we're providing not only our own content for and continuing and want to grow and have nothing but ambition for Blog Critics itself, but we're also doing content for Technorati, and of course Lisa being our executive editor is directly involved in all this stuff, and, oh, yeah. and so uh, it's just that our focus has changed, and the show became kind of, oh God, we got to do the show, and it's not it's not that we don't want to do the show, it's just that we haven't had the kind of preparation time, you know, that we've right. had in the past. That's the problem for me, is just being able to prepare, because it's, you know, I feel like as much fun as I have talking to all these people, and I always, without exception, learn a lot every show. Oh, yeah. I still feel, you know, gosh, I wish I would have been able to prepare better. So, anyway, <laughs> that's the long story of, I, uh, there's been a certain amount of, uh, of de-emphasis of the show, and it has nothing to do with with our interest in it. It certainly has nothing to do with the guests. It's just been we our lives have been rearranged, and we're still sort of trying to figure out how to make everything fit. Well, let's hope the uh, the new year brings better things. Speaking for myself, I know my prep time for tonight's show was uh, uh, unfortunately just as minimal as it has been for the last couple of months. But I hope that you had more time to peruse through books and listen to CDs and so on. I guess we'll uh, we'll try to figure that out as the show goes on. So let's uh, we do have four guests tonight, and uh, assuming everybody calls in, shows up like they're supposed to, it's going to be a pretty crowded uh, pretty crowded show. So yeah, we haven't done that for a while. Should we probably get it. going. <laughs> yes, we should. Uh, this is BC Radio Live, live every week at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and uh, hosting or co-hosting with Eric and Lisa. I'm Philip. 
Mark Aronson is a historian, a speaker, a publisher, an editor, and an author. Uh, his website is markaronson.com. That's M-A-R-C-A-R-O-N-S-O-N.com. Uh, tonight we're going to talk with him as an author. His new book is called Unsettled, The Problem of Loving Israel. And he's here to talk with us about it right now. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's kind of fun to be here amidst voices from hither and yon. <laughs> they are. We really are hither and yon. We all call in. I, we mention this from time to time, but I think a fair number of people still think they're like there's some magical studio floating up in the sky where we all are. I'm I'm in Aurora, Ohio, and and Phillips in Dallas, and and Lisa's in Connecticut, and uh, we're talking to you. Where are you? New, New Jersey, right? Yeah. So by golly, we are we are coast to coast, uh, or almost, and you know all over the nation, and it really is a virtual world. That's that's another thing that's so exciting about doing this show is not only is is the outlet new and different, being i.e. the internet. We have a lot more flexibility, and we have more freedom, and and uh, all that's really nice because I got a I got a long background in radio and TV, and 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 the constraints always grow wearisome and. I don't feel constrained here at all. Anyway, yeah, it's great. I, my my first question is what before we get into the real meat sure. of the topic because obviously, sure. boy, what could be more timely? My gosh, exactly. you've probably been inundated with with interview requests. I would right. imagine uh, is is I'm interested in how you chose to get into writing for the young adult market. That's really interesting in that. Uh, right. You're doing all these other things, so I I mean it doesn't seem like yeah, that would automatically. Yeah, when I was in grad school uh, getting my doctorate in history, I was working doing it some adult publishing and as an editor and a company uh, wanted to revive a series of, of books for younger readers that I had read as a kid. They were books called the Land and People books. Each book was about a different country, uh, portraits of the nations. And I had grown up loving those books and so the chance to sort of take what I was learning on an academic level and find a way to bring it to kids was just thrilling. And I started doing that back in the 80s. And, you know, the thing about writing for, editing for, being in touch with uh, the world of people who work with kids, whether it's librarians or teachers or parents or the kids themselves, is it, it's addictive. You just get, once you're doing it, you're doing it. And uh, um, I, I think the other Part of it is, since my interest has always been to take really the kind of newest and, and most interesting and some, often the most complex ideas and find a way to bring them to to high school kids, it, it's been very satisfying because if you hear stuff about high school kids, what you always hear is they're completely distracted, they don't know anything, they're you know texting 24 hours a day or whatever. And then you go to a high school and you meet kids who are, as engaged and as smart and as challenging as as you could want, and so it's just proven to be a, a satisfying experience for me. Um, I so, would think also simply the the taking, um, like you said, you know, complicated, really topical subjects and making right. them as clear as possible. That that would be really satisfying because well, it's interesting. All it's readers cool. appreciate that, yeah. you know. Yeah, in this book on Israel, it's been really caught in the crossfire between um, it was named a book of the year by Kirkus and then it was condemned by the Jewish Library Association but while I'm getting you know from both sides in the adult world um, the uh, I've been getting letters from teenagers who exactly as you say were just grateful that someone was giving them an intelligent way to think and and to challenge and to probe and and all of the questions around Israel, which anybody who picks up a paper is going to immediately feel assaulted by who's right, who's wrong, you know what what is this tra- tragedy? Why doesn't it stop? And I don't even mean just Gaza; I mean the endless roiling. Um, and uh, I try to to give a helping hand. Yeah, one of our writers. I, I was waiting. It was the holidays, of course, and things slowed down. But you know, one of I was waiting for the stories to start flowing on our site on Blog Critics. You know, we publish thirty, forty stories every day, and obviously that was big, big news. Right. And, and and it took days. And I and I was thinking, my gosh, is it just the holidays? I mean, come on. And then finally, a story came out, and the headline. You know, they were being facetious, absolutely. But the you know, the headline was. 
Palestinians and, <laughs> and Israel right, again. Right. God, right. same old, same old. You know, right, tell me right. when there's something new. So right. it, it, it is. It, and is is there any topic that's more fraught with ambiguity? Because my gosh, you know, I think anyone who's you know seeks some some level of of intellectual honesty, there's all kinds of points to be made on both sides. There's just well, let me give you a great example of that, and this is something that that I was led to by writing the book, but it took place just last month. Um, obviously after the book came out. But, uh, you know, all of them, everyone who's looking at the newspapers, TV, radio, Internet, is thinking about Gaza and, you know, the horrible, you know, the misery on both sides of why are we, this tragedy, 600 or more people killed, you know, et cetera. And yet I want to tell you that one of the most optimistic things that I've heard of in in Israel happened in the same month, and nobody knows about it. And here's the story. <clears throat> One of the big themes of my book is the fact that the Arab population within Israel, I'm not talking about the West Bank, I'm not talking about Arabs who want the right to return, I'm talking citizens of Israel, is 20% of the population. That is to say a higher percentage than either blacks or Hispanics in America. That's, uh, blacks are 14%, Hispanics are 15%. So there is this fundamental question in Israel where when most people think of Israel, they think a Jewish state. But here it's supposedly a Jewish state, and one-fifth of the state are Arabs, who may be either Christian or Muslim. Well, this is a big issue that's going on in Israel, and they've been thinking about it. And an ultra-ultra right-wing group of Jews decided to try to stir up controversy by having a march that would go into the most Arab of Arab villages in Israel. That's called Um Umm al-Fam. And it it was exactly like, I hate to say it, the neo-Nazis who decided to march to Skokie in 1977 precisely because they knew there were a lot of Holocaust survivors there. They wanted to make a point. They wanted to stir up controversy. They wanted to, I'm sure... They hoped in Israel that the you know the Arabs would be very angry, and then there would be TV images showing angry Arabs, etc. Well, an Israeli group called Sikui, which is made up of both Arabs and Jews, decided to not let this happen. So they put out a call to have people come to Umm al-Fam. So 600 people from all over Israel came to Umm al-Fam met the mayor, made their presence felt, and because they were there and because they took that stand that we're not going to allow this kind of provocation, the police said, you can't have the march. And what was good about this to me is it showed that even in a country where we always think, oh, those guys, they always hate each other, they're always fighting. No, there are also voices that are saying, like Rodney King, can't we all just get along? Can't we work together? And in this particular case that happened literally days before the events in Gaza, they succeeded. Well, it really is a functional democracy. Uh, you right. know, and I know one of your fundamental questions is can you have a democracy and, you know, or at least and a religion what amounts to a theocracy? Right, and my feeling there is ultimately you can't, because the problem, because Israel is a democracy, the fastest growing group in Israel are the ultra, ultra, ultra religious. Well, let's say theoretically, the ultra religious became 51% of the population. They could vote in restrictions completely at variance with the founding documents of Israel, which were as a secular state. So I th- I think that you have to comp- as we do in America you have to divorce um uh, you know religion and state I I think that because uh, you know otherwise the majority can impose beliefs or not beliefs but actions uh, you know on on the minority that are that that do not belong in a in a democratic uh, society well, and also um, uh, corollary to that is things, uh, mores, beliefs, tenets, you know, social norms that are in fact religious 
are based right. in religion are then treated with, as if they are uh, civil. And, right. and that's uh, not fair either. Right, although it's interesting. Uh, yes, you make a good point there. Uh, an Israeli scholar, however, disagreed with me slightly because he pointed out that in Israel, for example, uh, it's illegal to sell pork to Jews. However, if I walk into a pork store, no one's going to ask me what I am. And he contrasted that to in America, where in most places you can't buy liquor on Sunday because it offends religious sensibilities. So in some ways, even though you know America in some ways imposes more of religious restrictions than in Israel, where the, the, the law is on the books, but it's not exactly in practice. Well, um, part of the difference there, though, seems to be that in my experience, blue laws and, and similarly religious-based laws are, uh, in America seem to be disappearing or falling down as they're challenged in court. You have the uh, you know, anti-sodomy law here in Texas. You, right. I mean, I live, I live in Texas, so I deal with this all the time. Uh, right. it, it seems like any time a municipality gets a chance to vote on whether or not they can buy booze in a grocery store, they vote for it. And so <laughs> I, I, we're at least heading in the right direction. We're heading in the irreligious direction. Right. But I, I think but the fundamental problem for Israel, I think, is that it was created out of this nationalist impulse to give Jews a homeland, which was fully understandable and has in many ways done great things. But it is also a democratic state, as you guys point out, that has one quarter of the population that isn't Jewish, a fifth of the population that, that is Arab, a growing population that you know, extremely radically religious, and how do you hold all those things together? And and I think ultimately, to me, something has to give. And what I think needs to give is the definition of Israel as a Jewish state. I think what it has to be is Israel as a state in which Jews feel comfortable, feel at home, feel free, you know, all of those things but which is the state of whoever happens to be there. And uh, that, to me, is the vision of Israel's future, and that's what I think the, the protests in, in, in Um al-Fam you know, pointed to, a sense of Israeliness um, that was shared by everyone who was there, no matter what their, their background. Do you think the what appear from the outside, um, and not all the time, of course, but... But periodically, it would appear to be overly aggressive uh, military actions. Do you feel that that ultimately is rooted all the way back to the Holocaust? That's a very good question. One of my cousin's wife, one of his his wife, the wife of one of my cousins. <laughs> not like the, this is not a big love situation, but. Uh, um, is a psychoanalyst, and she talks uh, – they live in Israel, and uh, she talks very much about how Israelis have this very – Israeli Jews combination of feeling weak and feeling dominant. And so the extent to which that sense of weakness and therefore the need to compensate for it with, you know, with, with, with overbearing uh, dominance – comes from the Holocaust, or whether you could argue, and I would argue this, that the Holocaust, from a Jewish point of view, was really the sum, summation of everything else the Jews had been through. So it wasn't like it was clear sailing before that. So in a True. way, the, it, it's like the Holocaust was the sort of, you know, it's like you're doing calculus. You, you go to the limit. It's the summation of, of all the pogroms and, you know, anti-Semitic doctrine, et cetera, that, that had existed through the ages. Um, but so I think the sense in which there's a feeling that we're uh, Israelis have the feeling that we're terribly weak, and at the same time that they're the dominant power in the region, and and I think that seesaw is, is very deep in 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 the Israeli psyche, um, where where it's hard to find a balance point between that that feeling of being on the edge of destruction and the feeling of being you know completely dominant. Because of course that affects and is is deeply involved in the U.S. relationship with Israel, where 
you know, we feel, I think, ultimately very protective, you know. Right. Well, it was interesting. When Moshe Dayan, the great Israeli uh, general, uh, came to America in the 50s to to sort of sign some agreement or get American aid, he said of Israel, you know, we're, we're terribly weak and yet we're going to win. And so that that mixed message, I think, is something that has come up a lot. I, I think Americans feel a sense of affinity with Israel, and justly. Israel is a democracy. It's a highly educated country. It's a highly productive country. Any American who goes there, almost any American, is probably going to feel a sense of, you know, it's a physically beautiful country. It's an emotionally beautiful country. They're going to feel excited to be there. Uh, obviously, the case of an Arab American may or may not feel that. But uh, I, I think that – so I think the American affinity is, is normal. I mean, it's, it's normal that Americans should feel that. Uh, and also there's a certain sense in which I think America views Israel as sort of the island of Americanness in an otherwise alien region. And, right, right. you know, like sort of a proxy on some level. And I think mm -hmm. that's some source of tension. Like Israel doesn't want to feel like it's a proxy. But right. um, so I, I think that I'll tell you, you know, again, with my book, the reactions I got here were some people who were very protective of what I think of as a kind of ossified image of Israel and we're saying, hands off, leave it as it is. They're under assault. We've got to stand, you know, it, it reminded me of what you used to hear in America in the 60s, you know, my country right or wrong, you know, a feeling like don't question. On the other hand, I think I heard from people who were saying it's time for questioning. I don't know if you guys know there's this new group called J Street, which is yeah. a Washington-based organization of what I would say liberal uh, Americans who uh, – think probably in many cases the way I do, and they want to say that too is a voice of, right. of American Jewry, that, the voice of, that, is, that does not want to say my country right or wrong. The analogy I keep giving to people is J. Edgar Hoover said that Martin Luther King was, being, was undermining America by protesting you know, against segregation, etc., that, that, that made him a communist agitator, that he was weakening the country. But, of course, he was strengthening the country. He was pushing, pushing America towards where it needs to go. So, to and me... One of, those things, one of those things, maybe, that only becomes clear in retrospect, looking back, once... Uh, right, although once there were certainly people... And painful times are over. Right, but there were certainly people of all colors in America who supported Martin Luther King at sure. the time. So, well, uh, my... Tell you, Mark, I, I hate to interrupt... Especially since I know you're you're building to a, to a point, but uh, we are okay. we are on a <laughs> schedule. Okay, uh, the I, I, like to, I, I ramble, but and, and I'm, anyway, I'm really grateful <laughs> that you guys hosted me here, and uh, my book is Unsettled: The Problem of Loving Israel, and perhaps we and can the website is sure. The website is Mark Aronson, M A R C A R O N S O N, so people can visit the website, find out more about you. Get some more details on uh, Unsettled and also where to order it. It is available now. It is and available now, much. Amazon, online, many bookstores, things like that. Okay, thank you very thank much you for talking with us, Mark. Thanks for having Thanks, me. Thanks, Mark. Really enjoyed it. Love to have you back. Yeah, I tell you, it just seems, especially when we have these uh, four guest shows, it always seems like we, we get people that would do well to talk for, oh, gosh, an hour, hour and a half. <laughs> well, that's a topic that will not uh... – Soon wear it will never die. Out. It will never die, yes. Well, BC Radio Live is a production of blogcritics.org and is broadcast weekly at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, where we are now. And with Eric and Lisa, I am Philip. Divorce is an unfortunately <laughs> common part of uh, modern life, and most of us know some ugly stories, or perhaps we've lived them. Uh, our next guest, though, offers a bit of hope. Maureen Palmer's documentary, How to Divorce and Not Wreck the Kids, airs tomorrow night on the CBC, uh, which is wonderful for you, of course, if you are in Canada. And Marina is here tonight to talk about that documentary and also about collaborative divorce. The website is bountiful.ca. And uh, welcome to BC Radio Live, Marine. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Was it your pleasure to make the film, or was it kind of a, 
uh, uh, making the, the, the best out of a bad situation? Well, I have to tell you, I think it was a little bit cathartic for me because 13 years ago I had that kind of separation and divorce where we really did try to put the kids' needs in, the kids' needs first. Uh, when I moved out, my ex-husband and I rented the house that was kitty corner from ours, and we took turns living in it. And then every second weekend for 10 years, um, I flew from Vancouver to Edmonton, which if you were in the States, that would be like Seattle to um, Montana, and stayed in a new bedroom of my old matrimonial home in the basement so we could be parents together. Wow. So the, our kids, who are now 27 and 22, said, Mom, you and Dad should write a book called How to Divorce and Not Wreck the Kids, but we made a documentary instead. Was your husband involved, ex-husband involved also? Uh, actually, only more as a, in a supportive role. He's on a fellowship this year, so I mean, he was you know he, he helped me frame the ideas, gave me guidance, but it was mostly mine and my partner Helen Slinger's endeavor. Interesting. Wow. And and so um, I mean, it, just, it, it the the impetus to make the film really did come from this personal experience, and and I, I, I'm assuming that you are your conclusion is is that much effort was worth it. Um, absolutely. You know, I, I still think it's part of a grand social experiment. I think both my girls are doing more than all right. We don't know what happens in the outcome in the end, but the evidence uh, uh, is built up from four decades, and it's conclusive what old-school old adversarial divorce does to children is, you know, basically destroys them for life. And, you know, we have to have in North America a new paradigm for divorce where we actually can be grown-ups, lead with our better selves, and put the kids' needs first. And I have three amazing couples on film doing that. And and is that happening in real time in the film? Uh, it's happening in real time in the film. One couple, Sally and Lionel, he walks in on Halloween last year and says he's done. December 1st, he moves out. January, they're in front of our cameras, and they allowed us to film every moment of five very tough collaborative divorce negotiation sessions. For anybody who doesn't know what collaborative divorce is, it's fairly, you know, it's, I guess it's about 10 years old in North America. Each person still has a lawyer, but each person and the lawyers, all four, sign a contract not to go to court. They commit to a process in the room that's respectful. And you, as you see on the film, when Sally falls apart in one particularly grueling session, it's her husband's lawyer who builds her back up again. It's a way of saying, we can do this in this room in a way that will give you a framework for being respectful to each other as you raise your children still together. You know, I have to tell you, um, a lot of this sounds really familiar. We didn't have the the framework, um, the contextual framework that you guys had. This happened, uh, my divorce was uh, 1990, and, uh, uh, but, and the two of us were uh, early 30s, and let me tell you, we were absolutely... Spoiled, rotten, stupid, idiotic, retarded <laughs> boneheads. And how we arrived, both of us, both oldest children, both very spoiled, both we got married really young, right out of college, had no idea what the reality of it was, had kids just a couple of years later. You know, I had I was 25 uh, when I had my first, and uh, absolutely and utterly unprepared for any of it, and uh, you know when it ended, it was like, my God, how do we make it that long? At least in retrospect. <laughs> and but somehow through all of that, um, the kids were important enough to both of us, and they were only uh, well, only they were six and uh, two at that time, and uh, we we really did. Uh, build uh the you know parting of our ways around having mutual and in theory <laughs> in theory equal access uh joint legal in other words custody to, with, yeah. with the kids and uh it, it became very complicated we were both out in california she wanted to come back here to ohio uh so uh 
she was enticed. Her parents offered her their house if she would come back. <laughs> oh you can God. have our house, oh, you know, wow. the house you grow up, grew up in uh, if you come back here. So she did, and so I had to decide, you know, am I going to follow them and go back to Ohio? And uh, it wasn't really easy because I had to sell my business and, and, you know, lots and lots of decisions. But I did make that decision uh and and uh been back here ever since and I, I we certainly both feel that we did the right things i i don't think we feel we lost anything and we were able to uh maintain very positive strong close you know intimate relationships with both kids we both spent a lot of time with them all along there weren't any big gaps um you know we both saw them essentially every week and uh, it, it, it never is exactly equal because we were about 70 miles apart and, you know, they were in school, so they had to go one place or the other. And so, you know, it, wasn't, it didn't turn out to be exactly equal. And I was always driving over there yeah. for activities yeah. and events. Yeah. And, and, and for 10 years, my life centered around, really, my relationship with the kids. And, but I'll tell you, I, I don't regret any of it because I think, no, it's, I, I think it's the best thing I've ever done. Well, uh, let me address a couple of things you said. First of Please. all, if it, if it was 1990, you were a trendsetter. Number two, uh, Dr. Joan Kelly, who's in Corte Madera, California, she's probably the world's expert on the on the impact of uh, divorce on children. She studied it since 1968. The number one leading indicator of whether a child is going to have um, a good outcome post-divorce is how much his or her father remains in the picture. Children whose fathers remain in the picture on a consistent basis, we're not talking week in, week out, but consistent there during the good times and the bad, not just fun weekend dad. Those kids have the exact same opportunity of success in life as happily married family children. So you've given your kids a great gift, and I, you, you, know, you probably didn't think about it in this context, but in your circle, you, know, you were showing people a new paradigm very early. And I think, certainly it's happening in Canada, our last census material tells us that the vast majority of Canadians, common law and married, who separated in the last five years did not go to a lawyer, did not engage in an adversarial process, and actually did, you know, lead with their better selves. It doesn't, and it doesn't take, I like to say, I'm no paragon of virtue, and if I can do it, anybody can. <laughs> well, we are, uh, we... I'm actually just kind of amazed by uh, the high the high number that you're recording there from Canada. Um, we're about out of time, but let me ask just a, a couple of last questions. Sure. I, the, the documentary is airing tomorrow night on the CBC at 9 o'clock, uh, so Canadian viewers and people right along the border can obviously check it out. Are there any plans to make the documentary available uh, for U.S. residents, either on DVD or airing it yes. somewhere here in the States? Yeah, I think if anybody would like to go to my website, which is bountiful.ca, and by the way, there's amazing resources on there for anybody who's contemplating divorce, including a template from Joan Kelly on how to actually tell your kids, because apparently only 5% of us do that. We're going to announce plans on the website for um, an American sale, we hope, and also plans for downloading and for uh, distribution sales. And um, we filmed some great stuff in California that we didn't use in the documentary that Americans should see, which is a program in Los Angeles County Superior Court for couples that are so um, involved in high conflict, they have a choice. Show up for this program or go to jail. And that program is remarkable for breaking the conflict cycle. I bet it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you've got a pretty tough choice there. <laughs> um, thank you very much. No problem. The documentary is called How to Divorce and Not Wreck the Kids. The website is bountiful.ca, and there is just a ton of stuff available there. It does air on the CBC tomorrow night at 9 p.m. And uh, thank you very much for being on the show tonight, Marie. We should Thanks, mention guys. that. Uh, excuse me, one second. Uh, Diane Christine did a. Did she interview you? Right. I know she did. She a story. did. Yeah. yeah she, yeah. she has an interview and a story about the documentary on Blog Critics. Yeah, yeah it was a, a great job. Very good article. Very good thank article. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Good luck with it. All that. right. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is BC Radio Live. Uh, with Eric, Lisa, and me, I'm Philip. Uh, join us live each Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. 
Well, we've seen the price of gas go from uh, about a buck fifty to four bucks, and then back again. In fact, it shot up like more than twenty cents just in the last couple of days near my house. It's a buck two eighty now. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it, the funny thing though is that that's about as much as, as most of us think about oil. Even when gas was uh, was four bucks a gallon, it was more like. Uh, you know, do we fly or drive on our summer vacation? But our next guest actually says there's a much bigger picture, uh, one of peak oil, a declining supply, and uh, the end of the industrial age, at least uh, as we know it. His name is John Michael Greer, and he's got a few websites, uh, including, let's say, the archdruidreport.blogspot.com. If there's a better one, uh, John, feel free to fill me in. Uh, his newest book is called The Long Descent, A User's Guide to the End of the Industrial Age. And uh, welcome to BC Radio Live. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Is that the best site for you, the archdruidreport.blogspot.com? Yeah, I think so, For certainly for discussion of peak oil and the other issues I call I cover in the long descent. Okay, very good. Well, we're, you know, we're all in favor of druids. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they say the great thing about having druids for your friends, they worship the ground you walk on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's classic. Uh, I, I love how bad that is. <laughs> so what brought yeah, you to I'm, this I'm topic? I'm groaning, but I'm going to write that down. What, what brought you to such a uh, Manichaean topic? Well, uh, actually, thank you for using that word because that's exactly what I'm not trying to say. Well, I knew that. I'm not. No, you know the the, the Manichaean idea that that you can divide the world into what we want and what we're going to get anyway. Right. <laughs> put the, the, this focus on opposites. One of the things that um, to 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 answer your question, I got involved in um, in ecology, in appropriate technology, all this stuff back in the 1970s, the last round of energy crises. And unlike many people, I stayed in, stayed interested and in, stayed involved through the um, the intervening years when political manipulation crashed the price of energy to to uh, corrected for inflation, the lowest it's ever been. But um, you know, and it's, it was very much part of um, the same the same set of attitudes, the same movement of thought that got me involved in the Druid tradition, for example. You know, an awareness of the fact that we can't just take nature for granted. We can't just assume that we can have whatever we want uh, just because we happen to want it, and the world will is somehow obliged to cough it up. So you know, it just this is an application of the same way of thinking. What what are the what are the trends at work in our world today, and which way are the in what direction are they headed, and what does that mean when you compare it to the the sort of fantasy of the future that we all that we've all grown up on? Do you do you are you satisfied with the with the subtitle of um, not the user's guide part, but to the end of the industrial age, the or is it more age. of a transformation? I, I, <laughs> Um, well, whether an end is fast or slow, it's still an end. Um, the thing is, industrialism is not is is a very specific kind of thing, a specific way of um, you know producing goods and services and of managing an economy. And it's there. There are two things that really define an industrial system. First of all, really extreme centralization around the use of around the use of energy and the manufacture of goods. You don't have things being made in workshops, you have them made in huge sprawling factories and then shipped halfway around the world. So what's going on is using as much energy as possible. I don't think there's any way you could make goods and services that would use more energy than the way we're doing it now. <laughs> this, no. That's a funny way of putting it. There, there we go. This I mean when, when you realize you you take a cup of coffee, okay? And you think, okay, here's this cup of coffee. How much energy went into putting that cup of coffee next to your chair? Okay, there, of course, there's the energy to boil the water in, or, the, or your, you know, whatever kind of coffee-making gear you have. There's the energy needed to manufacture that equipment. There's um, the, the fleets of ships and the trucks and everything else that brought these coffee beans up from somewhere in Latin America. And... It literally shipped things halfway around the world, bounced it from one warehouse to another warehouse to a supermarket, and then you probably drove the three blocks to the store um, to get it. In order to drink coffee by the cup, we burn oil by the barrel. And one of the points of my book is that this is not something we can keep doing. Well, it does seem inefficient, doesn't it? It's fantastic. Well, it's it's inefficient in that it uses a lot of energy. It's efficient in the in the kind of cockeyed sense that our um, 
our economies have, have been using because it's been cheaper for about the last century. It's been cheaper to use to, uh, to burn energy for something than it is to hire someone to do it. And so we've literally we've just replaced human being human beings human labor with energy across the board in our economy. Um, Interesting. And, and so basically, I mean, when you realize a hundred years ago, for example, a factory consisted of a long line of guys with hand tools. You know, you right. go to the you, you go to Henry Ford's. Um, automobile factory, and you have these these guys who are swarming over. They've got their wrenches, and they've got their um, screwdrivers, and they've got you know all this all this kind of stuff. They're not using robots, and they are you know these are skilled craftsmen who are putting together a car. They're putting together you know they they do whatever it is they do, and it moves on the assembly line, which was you know very new and exciting in those days. But a hundred years ago. Most households had, um, had domestic servants, a very large number of households, even relatively modest ones down the social thing. They would hire a cook. They would hire a housekeeper. Nowadays, instead, we use electricity to drive machines to do most of those same things. Yeah, it's considered, you know, wow, that's <laughs> – who do you think you are, man? <laughs> well, hiring people to do all that? Yeah, hiring, hiring someone. But, but look at what's happening. Somebody could be making making a living. And instead, I mean, we wonder why we have an unemployment problem. We have an unemployment problem nowadays because we've basically gotten rid of, a, of an entire world of jobs that were once available to people with fairly modest educations and replaced them with just burning more energy. And, and, more and we just product. took a whole bunch of big steps just in the last few months uh, mm -hmm. to take that even farther. Now we're, mm -hmm. now we're removing the, the whole automotive <laughs> industry, at least as we know it. Well, the, the automotive industry is, is removing itself. Um, that someday, someday when the, when the dust has settled and the rubble has stopped bouncing, somebody's going to need to do a history of how Detroit destroyed itself. Because they had every opportunity to get a clue and ran in the other direction as fast as they can. Well, and seems, they're still doing it. Sure. I mean, it seems to me that just on the on the on the meta scale, that it really is just a, a question of pursuit of maximum profits, mm -hmm. short term, mm -hmm. versus you know, like you said, uh, you know, just willfully refusing to to take yeah. a peek down the road, just a peek just down the road, just, you know, just, a, a, a little peek. bit, yeah. uh -huh. and. And instead, focusing on focusing on that immediate short term, the what's the next quarterly profit statement look like? Right. Um, you know, the, um, a lot of a lot of people talk about um, you know the the, our, the marvels of our modern market economy and this kind of stuff. Adam Smith, the guy who wrote the Wealth of Nations, really the the guy who invented modern capitalist theory, said that what what we call a corporation, what they called a joint stock company in those days, was the worst possible way to run a business. Huh. Because the people who own the business have no responsibility over running it, and the people who run it have no they have they don't need to care. All they have to do is keep the stockholders happy, and it doesn't matter if they run this country, company into the ground. And so Adam Smith is saying, "Look, this is what's going to happen. Don't go there." But you, you well, of course, it hit every every aspect of our economy where everyone uh, was just over leveraged. Mm -hmm. So that was. <sighs> You know, my goodness. Yeah. Well, the, the idea the idea that you can you can somehow prosper as a country by taking on debt. When did that get into people's heads? It's just massive crazy. amounts of debt. And massive it's so obviously, percentages of debt. And, it, and it's so obviously stupid. I mean, well, you run yourself into stupid, debt. Stupid, you know. It, well, it is stupid. You run yourself into debt. You go broke. It's not a way to prosper. And but all yet, these really smart people with all these. Uh, letters after their names kept uh -huh. saying, but no, it's different now. It's, we have the oh, internet. Oh, oh, That's oh, different. Oh, oh, it's oh, a oh. whole different world. Um, someday, I, I would encourage all of our listeners to go out and pick, a, pick up a little book by John Kenneth Galbraith, um, the very famous economist and historian. It's called The Great Crash 1929, and it is the funniest, most knee-slapping, most hilarious book of serious economic history you'll ever read. He's basically analyzing what happened to cause the great 1929 crash that led into the Great Depression. And you know what? It was constantly – it's different this time. There's a new – they didn't have the word paradigm yet, so I think it was a new economic model. All the same 
nonsense that was being trotted out about the housing bubble and the tech bubble and the last oh, two or three dozen bubbles to pop was already being trotted out in 1929 to justify the unjustifiable. Oh, it goes, goes back to the tulips, man. It goes back to tulips. And yet... N- Nobody ever stops and draws in a deep breath and says, hold it. Well, actually, that's not fair. Some of us do. Yeah, you did. Good for you. I, kept, I did not. I, <laughs> yeah, we, we deliberately, my, my wife and I deliberately have not. I mean, it's been some years since we could have afforded to buy a home, but are you kidding? Our plan, we, you know, we, we were watching home prices climbing and go, uh-uh, it is going to bubble and pop. And, yeah. you know. We'll that has happened. Yeah, we'll get a house eventually once it finishes uh, declining, but it's nowhere near far, down far enough yet. Well, the book is called The Long Descent, A User's Guide to the End of the Industrial Age. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I'm sure most readers can tell from listening to this show, there's bound to be stuff they agree with, stuff that delights them, and probably stuff that challenges them and uh, maybe makes them get angry too. So they, they should, they should, if, they, if they don't get infuriated, they're probably not paying attention. <laughs> there you go. You've already infuriated me twice, but I've cheered you on more than that. So, uh, well, there we so very go. good. Very well done. It's available right now in paperback. And uh, thank you very much for your time, John. Well, thank you very much for being, having me on. Really enjoyed it. Really interesting stuff. Well, we are uh, we are now at the final guest of the evening. It's been a it's been a crowded, busy show. We've only got about 14 minutes left. And uh, as Tom said at the beginning of the show, we've now managed to go coast to coast. We, uh, we're reaching from uh, East Coast all the way to West Coast. Our, uh, our next guest, our final guest of the evening, come from sextapesband.com or myspace.com slash sextapesband. And uh, we've actually got one song to play for you tonight. Uh, this is a sample of Trainwreck. Hi there. Sweet. We are rocking with the sex tapes right now. Yeah, we're going to the from sex tapes. The music sample we're listening to will be over in just a few seconds, and then we'll chat. Well, that was a sample of Trainwreck from the self-titled album Sex Tapes. The album's available just about everywhere, and uh, welcome to the show to talk about it. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. This is Kelly. Kelly, how are you? I'm doing good, man. How are you doing? We are we are swell. We haven't had a we haven't had such a full show for a while. Four guests, so it's been it's right been on. an effort to try to to try to squeeze everyone in, but we're, we're certainly glad we got you. So you're the songwriter along with Chris, right? Yes, I am. You're the guitarist, and uh, uh, the, the, the sort of the PR angle, I guess, is, is Chris Pittman being in the latest version of Guns N' Roses, but as far as uh, sex tapes go, he's the, the singer and guitar synth. That's interesting. And uh, and you're Kelly Wheeler. You're the other guitarist. And you guys are the two songwriters, right? That's right. That is correct. So how did how did the band come together? I'm hearing a lot of interesting uh, uh, influences. I got it kind of late, but I was able to kind of blow through it. And I was hearing a lot of bands I really like. Not that you know, it, just in terms of references, not being imitations or anything, but everything from Alice in Chains, the vocals on on the one we just heard, I heard a lot of Alice in Chains there. But you know, Filter, a little Nine Inch Nails, any any of the better bands that combine uh, the the organic rock band approach with some electronics. It sounds like. Well, to thank me. you. I appreciate that. Sure. Um, uh, the band came about. Uh, Chris and I have been friends for a while, and we worked on projects before, and we wanted to do another one, and. I made this demo of a bunch of these songs that you're listening to, and, and he liked the way it was going, so we got together, got a friend of ours playing bass, Marco, and got Ryan playing drums, and we started tracking, and 
that's this is what came about. How long has it been out? Uh, it just came out in November, so it's pretty new. It is new. What kind of reaction are you getting? <laughs> uh, we're getting a great reaction. People are really excited. Fans just love it, and yeah, it's going really well. You guys we're playing live? Uh, we are playing live February 4th at the Key Club on Sunset Strip. Well, there's worse places than that. <laughs> no, it should be fun. We're actually playing with our friends Pygmy Love Circus, um, our friend Danny Carey, who plays drums in Tool, also plays in Pygmy Love Circus. So, yeah, it should be a fun show. That was an, that was another band I heard some of in, in listening to you guys. I heard some Tool in there too. I don't. Know. But all your own, all all your your own style, all your own way. Uh, all, yeah, all we try. We definitely try to throw our own unique perspective into you know into the mix but uh still how do you guys write how, how do you put that together um, well i write all the music as far as the 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 basic riffs and the arrangements and then chris writes the vocals and we get together we hammer out more arrangements and basically goes like that it's worked so far that way it's really yeah. well Absolutely. Now, now for people who don't know, I think I know, but for people who don't know, what exactly is a guitar synth? A uh, guitar synth is, it could be any guitar with a special synth pickup that uh, picks up the strings and runs it through actual synthesizer. So it, it becomes a controller just like a keyboard. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So it's, it's, a, it's a treatment of it, basically. Um, it is, yeah. It gives it more like a natural feel, like playing guitar, but you know, it gives us like a a broader, fuller sound with the with the keyboards in the back. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, have you played live yet? Has this been more of a studio band so far, or or have you been uh, playing all along? We've played we played a couple shows, so we're just getting started with our live show. But uh, yeah, it's coming along great. Do you enjoy we playing live? We do enjoy playing live. The fan reaction is great, and people so far have asked us to come back, so that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's always a good thing. Now, I assume you guys do most of the songs from this album. Do you bring in other tunes, too, from, from previous projects and whatnot? Um, not yet. Basically focusing on, on the new record. Yeah. Okay. So so it's more like you're able to do kind of more like a concert-type set rather than a um, yeah, I mean, extended it's a pretty club cool set. It comes in just under an hour, so yeah, it's pretty full with yeah with all a, ten track totally. It's 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 it sounds like it's kind of a more or less you know a concert uh, version of the album, which must be a lot of fun to do. Do you do it in that same order? I mean, do you kind uh, of... we do. You know, we tried it once, and it's sort of uh, thrash, Chris. You know, so we had to figure out some better pacing. Right. But we did try it one time, and you know, we figured out that just wasn't going to work. So, that so now we up... have it. Uh, we have it like a little bit better range for the live performance. So that brings up a really great point. People don't realize, and and even people who who have performed, I think it's easy to forget that you know it, playing live really is a physical act, and and things like how loud you have to sing, and 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 how you know what you're doing to your throat, uh, oh, you know, yeah. really has a bearing on how things go, and you can't just. I know. It, it's not just a random thing where you could just do anything in any order you want, and you don't have to think about stuff like that. Yeah, it's totally the opposite. You definitely have to think about it. I mean, you want to have the performance top from from go, so. You have to be able to to keep up, you know, with the set yourself instead of wearing yourself out in the first song. And and it seems like that's probably most applicable to to vocalists as opposed to playing. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it's really relevant to what's Chris doing, especially since you know the vocalists are so involved. The vocals that he writes specifically, but yeah, definitely, it's the vocalists. So lyrically, um, how, how do you see yourselves? Where, where, what, what are your, you know, sort of areas of interest and focus? Um, I, I mean, it's pretty broad, but I wouldn't say it's all over the place. I mean, we're we're trying to express something that that fits the music, so it might be a little darker, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's like that kind of point of view, whatever whatever subject that we're tackling on each song. It definitely it can be dark sometimes, but then it can be you know really positive. It just depends. So I mean, it sounds like you typically are are having the music kind of dictate the lyrics rather than the I other think, way around. Yeah, 
No, I think the music has actually been the guide so far, actually, for the lyrics, especially right. on on songs like Medicine Man, you know, with the Eastern um, uh-huh. Eastern riff, and then, you know, songs like... Uh, but then songs like Trainwreck are sort of up and melodic, and, you know, it's the the lyrics can be really dark. So it, really, it just really depends. But, yeah, in a sense, the music was guiding the lyrics. Definitely. Right. Right, yeah. and and it seems like a lot of the songs, a lot of songs are 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 uh, real riff based. So I mean, you you as the guitarist, and you're the you're the guy putting that together. So you you are a riff meister. <laughs> I definitely like riffs, absolutely. And I I mean I'm I have a wide range of influences, but uh, I love guitarists who are also you know the riff masters. So I definitely uh, I definitely appreciate that. Who are some of your and favorites? And hopefully, hopefully that that comes out in the writing. Yes, absolutely. Who, that? who who are some of your favorites? Um, or influences? I'd have, I'd have to say Jimmy Page for sure, and uh, newer guys like Jack White. You know, he's like the riff master. Yeah, he, enough, he, he really does. He 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 comes up with something new each time. Yeah, and he's having to he's having to carry all the you know the melodic parts <laughs> of the music. It's you know That's for sure guitar and drums. It's crazy. I, I still can't believe yeah. they get away with that. So uh, you know, for me, there's a wide range of influences going back to the classics, but also the modern guys. Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains, definitely. Sure. You know, just just guys that really know their instrument but want to have a unique voice, some kind of statement, you know? Right. Are you guys going to be touring? Are you putting together a tour? Uh, right now we're booking regional shows. We may tour, but uh, right now we're not focusing on that. We're uh, we're just breaking out in L.A., so uh, we're going to focus on that in the, in the near, immediate future and see what happens after that. Well, there's certainly plenty to do there. <laughs> yeah. There, there's no lack. Yeah, there's of... a lot of stuff to do in L.A., no lack of places to play and you know crowds to conquer and <laughs> no, I mean, if you just cover the the if you just cover the the region you 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 got any number of places to play. Yeah, I think LA and Southern California and and just the western part of the US for us is going to be a huge thing. Right. That's pretty much our home base, so you know Now what's this label? That. Is that your label? Tone Right. Tone Right Records is our own label. Absolutely. And but, uh, we don't we don't just see it as a single act label um, right now. It may be, but in the future, we're we're actually. I mean, our our bigger plans are actually to release other acts and stuff. So we'll you founded it going. as a label that you you know happen to be performing on right now, but you see exactly. it growing from there. Right. Totally. Well, so you must have you guys have plenty of contacts. It sounds like you know you have your tentacles out there. I would think. <laughs> Well, we definitely know a few people. We're, yeah. we're talking to a lot of people, absolutely. So you, can you give us you any hints? You could always meet a few more. You know how it is. You could always meet a few more. Sure. Any any hints about who you're going to sign first or next? Uh, we're not really there yet. Um, as soon as I find out, I'll let you know. You know okay. You know. You'll be the first one to know. But, uh, yeah, we're still working that out. Well, I think that's well, a cool way to go. Yeah, you've got a lot of good marketing stuff. Uh, Sextapesband.com actually uh, right. does a pretty good job of, uh, you know, you can get just the album, online order special, $8. You can get it with a poster, with a T-shirt, with a hoodie, in DVD box go. packaging. Uh, a, a visit to your home? <laughs> Coasters? No, no, no. They'll hand deliver it so long as you live within a three block radius of uh, somewhere you don't want to be in LA. <laughs> right, right. Well, the site is uh, sextapesband.com, and of course you can also check them out on myspace.com slash sextapesband. And uh, it's been great talking to you, Kelly. Hey, it's great talking uh, with you guys as well. Thanks very much for having me. Sure, our pleasure. Good luck with the album and and uh, with the live performances. I, 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 I'm sure you guys are really good. I, I can I can hear how you know you'd be pulling. I'm I'm sure it's majestic live. <laughs> Thank you. We try we try our best. We try our best, and we'll keep you posted with more shows. Please do. I'll let you know. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. All right. Well, we've reached the end of the show for this week. We've kicked off the new year with uh, quite a lengthy uh, show. So please join us again next week. We're just getting back into the groove. 
And uh, thanks again to uh, Kelly Wheeler from Sex Tapes, also to John Michael Greer, Maureen Palmer, and Mark Aronson from earlier in the show. And, of course, special thanks to Lisa and Eric for hosting the show. I, I think I'm more, more of an announcer. That's what I've decided. I- I'm not a host so much as an announcer. <laughs> You're Don Pardo. Yeah, I, I spent I spent so long, uh, you know, typing up the script and trying to change it up a little bit week to week that no one even notices. So I figure uh, that, that's where all my energy goes. <laughs> well, I'm Philip Lynn. This has been uh, BC Radio Live. We do broadcast live every Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern. So be sure to visit us live, to participate in the chat room, uh, watch the live video feed, check out a number of other shows on the BC Radio Network. I'm mentioning that since you know we've got some other BC Radio hosts in the chat room right now. Uh, if you missed the live broadcast, audio archives are always available online, or you can subscribe to the podcast to have BC Radio Live delivered to you each week. If you're listening on the podcast, though, do ch- stop by blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. They've, uh, they've done a New Year website redesign, and it really is worth checking out. Pretty, pretty smooth. Until next week, aloha.